Well, good morning and welcome to the Men's Leadership Network. Uh, welcome to everyone here live in person. Welcome to everybody who's watching this uh, live streaming at offices around Davidson County, Williamson County. And welcome to anybody that's watching this as a, uh, a live feed, maybe, maybe uh, after the fact. Um, we're glad to have everyone here. Today we're going to discuss legacy. I'm very excited to introduce our speaker today. Jimmy Gentry spoke at Brentwood Academy when I was in eighth grade. He spoke on his experiences in World War II, uh, dealing with uh, being one of the first liberators of some death camps in Germany. He spoke on Veterans Day. And I'll tell you personally, from hearing um, a firsthand account from Mr. Gentry, it, it impacted me on uh, just the history of that time, but also it had an impact on the way I related with my own grandfather who served at that time. So I'm grateful for his uh, sharing that experience. Uh, Jimmy, uh, when he's not sharing his experiences with other organizations uh, nationally, he's working on his farm, he's helping coach football, and he's also still spending time uh, painting and doing other uh, creative uh, expressions. He also runs a day camp for children ages 8 through 13 where they learn to fish, play outdoor games, and compete and work as teams. Jimmy is an American hero who's dedicated his life to helping others in a profound, meaningful way. Please welcome Jimmy Gentry. All right, well, Mr. Gentry, thank you so much for being here today. It's glad an to be honor. Here. Glad thank to be you. Here. Um, just tell us about yourself, about your family, about your career. Um, well, I'm one of nine children, five boys and four girls in my family. And uh, we, uh, we grew up, or I say we, family, as I remember, me particularly, uh, during the Great Depression and World War II. And what, so the reason I said that is that's who I am. And those of us around 90 years of age, which is my age, uh, we, are the, we are World War II and the Great Depression. So a line on the up, that's us. That's where we got our values. So I, that's where I came from, is a, that during the Great Depression, when we didn't have anything, and didn't anybody else have anything either, so, so we didn't know anything any better, so we were happy. Uh, I remember having a happy childhood, growing up with my brothers and sisters and friends and that sort of thing. So uh, that, that got me started, and then my daddy dies when I'm 12 years old and leaves my mother with seven unmarried children to raise and no money at all. And when I say no money, I, I mean literally no money, not a, not a check that has $2 a week or anything, no money. So we had to do things that nowadays people don't, don't even understand when I say that we, we had to eat, but we didn't have any money. So we learned to catch rabbits, squirrels, and fish with our hands. And uh, literally, I, I could do that, and we loved to do that. And that was an, that was an adventure. So that's, that's where I started out is, is uh, with that. Great Depression era, uh, and uh, living off the land and that sort of thing. So uh, we could talk all day about that, how to catch a rabbit with, with your hand, how to catch a squirrel with your hand. And we might have to have you hand. back for that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It'd it, it take a little while to do that. This, this table, the big rock underneath there, if we put a hand under there, if there's a big old catfish in there, now, they, they won't do anything sometimes. You just rub on the head, you know, until you get your thumb in the mouth and your fingers in the gill and pull him out. Or what you want him to do is to bite you, and so you run your hand under the rock, and he bites you. Well, now your hand's already in his mouth. <laughs> so that's where you want it. And he has teeth like sandpaper, so don't jerk. 
you scratch yourself, and now you got him, just pull him out. So th those things, just everyday occurrence for us in growing up like that is go out and catch those rascals. And <laughs> Necessity. And we, and we literally lived off the land because we didn't have any money. And then you married, had children. Tell us about that. Well, uh, that's a, I don't know how to describe that uh, other than just do the best I can with it. Uh, uh, I married the prettiest girl in the world, and I hope you did, but I, I know I did. Uh, uh, she, uh, she was uh, born and raised in Franklin, just like me, and she, her family was well off. We didn't have anything. How we came together, I don't know. She had so many boyfriends, you'd have to sign it in to get a, have a chance to have a date with her. And so I never had a date. I never did have any. And so junior, senior prom came along one year, and uh, uh, her boyfriend was gone or something, and she didn't have anybody to go to the junior, senior prom with her. So she asked me if I would take her. Well, that started a romance that lasted 63 years. And wow. so I was just blessed with her and uh, so and the, and the children, and our two, three children. So I, I couldn't ask anything any better than what I had uh, with her. That's wonderful. Um, well, thank you um, on the outset for your service in the war um, and for the legacy that you leave there and for being willing to tell the stories of what that time was like. How did you come to serve in the Army um, and tell us about your experience in World War II? Oh boy, well you got four or five hours here now. And we do, I think everybody's <laughs> taking off work today and we're gonna, we're gonna hold tight. Well, let me, let me begin with, with the beginning of the war. I think it's important, uh, December the 7th, 1941, I had been to uh, Sunday school, Fourth Avenue Church of Christ, same location it is now. And uh, in those days, uh, we had the Sunday school and then there'd be a break between Sunday school and regular church service. And we had a habit of going around the corner on Main Street. The only thing open on Sundays was a drugstore. And it was White's drugstore's time to be open that Sunday morning. We'd go around, we were drinking a Coke and David Cook was behind the counter and he said, Dave, be quiet, be quiet. And he turned the radio up and we hear for the first time that the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor. December the 7th, 1941. I remember where I was standing. I remember who I was talking with. I remember what the, the, the radio looked like. It made such an impression on me that, that particular day. And then, uh, as I said, as a 16-year-old, I witnessed the greatest display of patriotism this country has ever seen. Because all those young men, older, older than I am, I was at that time, two, three, four years older, couldn't wait to get into service. And my brother was one of those. He was not quite, eight, had to be 18 when he was still 17. And he would go down to the corner of Five Points with a rock fence. And Mr. Lanier was in charge and he, he wanted to go with Mr. Lanier. Said, David, you can't go, you're 17, you gotta be 18. He'd go down every day. And he became a pest, I think. But So one day, Mr. Lanier uh, gave him some papers, said, David, go take these home, get your mother to sign them, and we'll take you. So he runs up, we moved into town, then after my daddy died, uh, he runs up Fifth Avenue and gets my mother to sign the papers, comes down, gives them back to him, gets on the bus. That's the last time we saw him, he was killed. And so that's the kind of patriotism I'm talking about in, in those days. And December the 7th, 1941, changed the world forever. It's never been the same since. So that was the beginning of it. and. Uh, 
he, he took his training and then my time came. I wanted to be in the Air Force because um, Cleveland Kennard Jr., the, they owned the swimming pool at that time, his daddy did, and, and he was a, a pilot. And not only a pilot, he was a good one. And in fact, uh, he became America's number two ace in World War II. He shot down 33 and a half German planes. And the how to get a half, some other pilot hit the same plane. Uh, and so he would come home before I went into service and uh, have his uniform on, a white scarf around his neck. He'd, boy, I wanted to be just like him. <laughs> so uh, I volunteered. I was going to go in the Air Force. And when, it, when the doctor examined me, he said, you can't get in the Air Force. I said, what do you mean? <laughs> you got color vision problem. Mm -hmm. I, I had red, not total color blind, but problem with it. And he said, uh, I remember what he said. I said, well, what am I going to do? He said, you go home to the Army or take anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went from wanting to fly to a foot soldier, right, just like that. And so uh, that was the beginning of it. And, and I don't know whether you want to go on with it or not, but I can go right on through the, the whole war. Well, tell us about the most difficult moment in the war for you. Well, I, I, let, let me do it the, like this. Uh, they cut our training short supposed to have 16 weeks and you historians will pick up on this right away why did they cut our training short well they cut our training short a whole month and we didn't even get to come home before we went overseas first thing you know and by the way I've never been out of the state of Tennessee before in my life now the next thing I know I'm in New York next thing I know I'm in the middle in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and boy that thing goes and goes and goes and I never seen anything bigger than the Harpeth River down here uh, you can jump across there and so here, here we go, uh, a month early from training. And uh, so they knew something was happening or about to happen. And then the first thing you know, you're, you're in England, uh, Liverpool, landing Liverpool, didn't stay that long, right off the, they, everything just kept moving is what I'm trying to say. Something was going on and they needed soldiers fast. And they, that's the reason they had us there. Then the first thing you know, we're on the LST. That's the one that left the front down. We crossed the English Channel and left the front, and there's France. I've always read about France and all that sort of thing, but here it is, and uh, it's cold. It's the Battle of the Bulge. You already figured it out, hadn't you? Mm -hmm. uh, Battle of the Bulge. So that was my first uh, part of the war was being in the Battle of the Bulge. Nearly froze to death. Uh, I had a friend, uh, my foxhole buddy, with Charlie Thiessen, and Charlie lived in New York. He talked funny. Uh, I didn't think I did, but they kept asking me to say that again. Say, I thought they couldn't hear in the north. They, they, uh, I, I, didn't know, I didn't realize they wanted me to say words that they'd never heard before. And so we were fox old buddies, and, uh, and he would say this. He'd say, okay, take your boots off, and I would, and he'd rub my feet until it hurt. And if they hurt, you got feeling in them. Mm -hmm. And then I'd rub his feet until it hurt. And that's how we say had two guys in the foxhole just across from us and said that their feet were not, not cold. Both of them hadn't had toes amputated, they had frostbite. Mm -hmm. So that's, that was, that's the beginning of it. That, that in, in the, my episode in the war was being dug in the, during those uh, cold days during the Battle of the Bulls. And, and uh, I could just go on and on talking about what happened in those days. And then finally, uh, I'll just briefly go through it with you, and then we can come back and pick up parts of it if you want to. But uh, when the weather began to change, and by the way, we knew that our weather 
uh, forecaster was, if planes are flying, well, it's good. Mm. If there's no planes up, either German planes or ours, uh, there's no good. If it's bad weather, they're not up. And so after being in those foxholes for about, I mean, we were in there all about three to four weeks, mm. and then finally we jumped off. That means, that means we move. And we move, uh, not like the movies have it, you know, you get out in all the big line, go across the fields and all that sort of thing. That was the way we moved. We move single file, scout out front, and then you follow him and follow him five yards apart, and here you go. I'll I tell you what I'll do for you. I'll do one, one situation, and I could do this uh, 13 times. The city that I'm going to take for you is Wurzburg, Germany. Uh, we, we walk all day, and the Germans didn't stop us. When you, we wonder what's going on, where are they? We should have known better, but anyway, we're walking five yards apart, and uh, you can't call time out. Uh, you say, well, I'm, I don't feel good. I don't think I'll go today. <laughs> no, you do go today, too. Uh, I, yeah, but my foot's hurt. You, you keep going. You don't, there's no excuse. You keep moving five yards apart, five yards apart. If you have to relieve yourself, you run ahead and relieve yourself, get back in line because you're responsible not only for yourself but the man in front of you. And we, we walked all day and didn't meet any opposition. I said, well, where are they? They, they quit, I guess. No, they hadn't. Night comes, and uh, I can remember this night just as well. Uh, we just kept walking. We don't know where we're going. I get the officers know, but we don't. They don't tell you. And we just kept moving. And I remember this, about 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock in the morning, I went to sleep walking. And it's not what you think. You don't say, well, oh, I'm sleepy. You just walk, all of a sudden, boom, I hit the ground. I had to wake you up every time. <laughs> hit the ground, get back up, and keep walking. Well, what they were doing, they were trying to get us to that city of Würzburg, Germany, before dawn the next morning. See, we didn't know this, but that's what they were doing because we had to cross a river, get into the city, and those rubber rafts we used, they, they'd pick us off in the water uh, from the buildings in the city. And so we got there right at dawn and, and got across over on their side. Now, keep up with me. We've already walked all day. We've already walked all night, hadn't had any sleep, hadn't had anything to eat. Now, we're in combat. We fight all day long. Uh, I can't, I have to tell you this, it doesn't mean a thing to any of you, I suppose, and I can't figure it out. I remember once we got on that side of the river with them, and they're in the building in the rubble, some of the buildings were still burning. Uh, I was backed up against the wall, and I hear a door open right beside me, and I pushed the safety off on my rifle, and the man comes out and he has a, a nicest looking gentleman, white hair, black suit, and he was saying, thank God you Americans are here in perfect English. I, who is this guy? This doesn't mean a thing in history, but he, he, then he goes off. Well, we work our way on up through the buildings a little bit and he's laying dead in the street. Somebody shot him. I think he may have been an American sympathizer or something, but we didn't shoot him. The Germany evidently did. But that was the beginning of it, and then, so we fight all day. And uh, I'll do this one for you. Uh, the Americans didn't purposely 
destroy churches, two reasons. One for religion, respect for religion. And the other one was that those church steeples sticking up in the steep, in the rubble of the city gave us a reference point. Mm. That's why we say two fingers to the right or three fingers to the left. We came off of that uh, steeple. And so the church was there and uh, the Germans knew that, so they were in the church. And uh, I can do this, it's not much fun for me to do, but uh, they was in that church and we had worked our way up to the church. Uh, Sergeant Randy McDavid is here on my left. He's from South Carolina. And we were trying to decide where are they, the machine gun that they were using were coming from in the church above somewhere. And while we were talking about it, trying to decide that, he dies. They shot him while I was talking to him. So you're that close to death uh, within arm's length. Then another one over here goes down. And then finally someone yells out, if we don't get out of here, they're gonna kill us all. So we jumped up, ran across the street and went into church with them, which was a good move on our part because we went into church, and I'll come back to that again in a minute. We trapped them above us now. Now they, are, they can't come down. So we, 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 we didn't plan it that way, but that's how it happened. And now we got there, we silenced that church that day. But the reason I, the reason I wanted to come back to that, I was really surprised when we ran in that church, there must have been uh, oh, 25 or 30 coffins, caskets in there waiting for, uh, to be buried. The death was unbelievable in those cities from bombings and whatnot. And so we, we fight all that day and then night comes, we fight again. The night is a weird night. Uh, in combat is that the, there's no light except a little flickering of light from a burning building maybe. But the Germans wore hobnail shoes and you could hear them in the streets running and, and we, we couldn't see them but we could hear them down there. And we got in this building and stayed there all night. And uh, I don't want to get you lost here but we've already go back, walk all day, walk all night, fight all day fight all night. The next day we get into the middle of the city, into a park. I remember I hadn't had any sleep yet. And uh, I remember in that city park there's shrubbery and all that sort of thing and uh, I picked out a big tree. I was getting behind it. It didn't help though because they were all around us. It was a terrible mistake on our part to get in there. They had us, they were in the buildings around us. A bullet, when it goes by your ear, it pops. It's a take a rubber band, pop a piece of paper with it, that sounds what a bullet sounds like. And I, I remember I was in E Company, there's a guy from G Company behind us, and he's hollered up there, and he said, they're after you. I said, no, I couldn't get away from them. Uh, twigs were falling around, a little, around me, from shrubs and sort of thing. And, and a bullet came and hit my helmet right above my left eye. If it had been this way, it would kill me. I went this way. And when it did, it saved my life because, bam! and I just fell on my face. I was already down on my hands and knees and they thought they'd kill me, so they quit shooting. So that's how close you get to it. And then you have, you lose a buddy here, you lose one here, that friend. And, the, and so we finished that day and uh, company commander said, we're gonna stop right here tonight. And he didn't have to say it a second time because everybody was asleep by the time he said that. Uh, gone two days and two nights without any sleep. 
and we finally secured the city. Anyway, so that's one, I could go through several sure. other situations like that. Uh, and my point in telling that is that here I am, 18, 19 years old, and catching rabbit squirrels and fish back home. Now I'm in, in the way of death all around you. And so you grow up pretty fast there. Uh, I might do that, I might share this with you that I think would be appropriate for us to hear this is the, the first time that I went into combat. We were in a French village. This was during the Battle of the Bulge in a French village and they found a room upstairs in an old bombed out building that had a, a, a stove in there and it was freezing cold, burning anything we could find. And uh, Michael Sismary was from Chicago. He was in our squad and uh, he's the first real live Yankee I'd ever seen up close. And so old Michael was sitting over in the corner leaning against the wall and he was older than the rest of us and neither shave, and he was just smoking a cigar, and just, oh man, he was talking big. And I said, golly, these guys in Chicago, they're bad news, you know. And we just go watch Michael hip with him all by himself, you know, and he just and he used bad language. Oh gosh, my mama would get him. And so, <laughs> anyway, he was just talking, talking. And uh, so, so, finally, when we did, jump off and, you know, and got in the back of a truck. They could take us in. This is going into the combat the first time you ask of this fear. This is where fear really grabs you. This is the first time we were going in and we got in the back of this truck and so crowded in there, you didn't have room for anybody else. And they pulled the tarpaulin down and there's no light. See, you can't, we couldn't strike a match at, at a while the whole time was there. Uh, we got in that truck, pulled the tarpaulin down. The truck's going to drive us a little ways. And, and it's so quiet in the back of that truck that you could hear everybody breathing. We were going into combat for the first time. And uh, I remember hearing Michael over to my left mumbling. And then I realized what I had to do. I went to God. I prayed. God, please take care of me. Please take care of me. And finally, the truck stops and lets us out, and we walk the rest of the way. Uh, Michael, Michael was dead on the third day he was killed. So we, we went through that sort of thing more than once, and then we moved from that town to the next village to the next village and so on. And sometimes we wouldn't meet any opposition. Sometimes we meet a lot of opposition. And so... That's just a story that I, that I can remember all of it. I've been blessed with memory. I can, I've been back to Europe once, and I went back to some of these places where I had walked. I've been back to the very village, to the very town, and all will those you, sorts of things. Will you tell us when the war ended and going into the concentration when, uh, camp? Okay. When uh, the, the, uh, the, we went to the concentration camp before the war ended. Mm -hmm. uh, let me do that first, then. Uh, we... Uh, we had been through places like uh, Schweinfurt and Wurzburg and Nuremberg, and, and we knew that the war was getting close to being over. Because we were, we were moving pretty fast, and the Germans were surrendering by the thousands. This whole army would surrender. They'd come in, we're going this way. And so was, I put it like this. It's sort of like a football game. You're ahead by four touchdowns, 
two minutes on the clock, we got the ball. We just, it's, it's over, just run the clock out. And so this was April 29th, 1945, it's sticks in my memory. And we were moving pretty fast and it's all over. In fact, we were even talking about what are you gonna do when you get home? And then all of a sudden, April 29th, we looked down ahead of us and see these walls, high as these walls, or higher than these walls in here. And uh, some sort of camp, we don't know what it is, uh, just a camp. And uh, you could put all of Franklin inside of it. It's a huge place. And we said, well, this is a German army camp. We don't know what it is, but there was a terrible smell. And we had two or three guys to throw up just from the smell, not from seeing something, but from the smell. And so we go down and there's a, there's a, a railroad going into the, I remember going down on the right corner, going to the north, northwest corner of that, build, of that wall. And some boxcars were on the outside. You couldn't see inside, but obviously there was some boxcars inside. So we go down and go around the end of the car to get the gate on the opposite side and open the doors and that's where the smell was coming from. It was a thousand dead bodies. A human body smells worse than a cow, a horse, a cat, a dog, or anything like that. That's where that terrible smell of rotten bodies, arms and legs no bigger than a broomstick, their legs about like that. And I said, gosh, I can't believe, what is this? And I asked my buddy, Charlie, I said, Charlie, who are these people? And then he said, they're Jews. And when he said that, I thought of Mr. Martin Torner back in Franklin, Tennessee. He was Jewish. That used to buy my furs when I was trapping in those days. I didn't understand it. Why the Jews? I didn't understand. There were 32,000 dead bodies. And I found out later, I did some research on it, that, that train had come from Krakow, Poland. We didn't, I didn't know this at the time. I didn't even consider it. We just know what to do next. And they moved them to get them away from the Russian army and had them locked in those boxcars without food. They died and been, been dead several days before we ever got them. And then we overran them there. And I might say this, had we not gotten there when we did, I wouldn't tell this story because they would have burned the bodies and I wouldn't have ever known it, wouldn't anybody have known it. Because wow. when we went into the camp, we had, they had one room, just nothing but dead bodies piled up, just like a wood stove. You just feed the stove, uh, burning the bodies. And this was at Dachau concentration camp. Mm -hmm. And so that, that was the experience there. Then from there, I, I remember very well, I was so glad to get away from that place. I want to get away from here. I don't want to be in here any longer. Get out of here. And we left and we went on to the end of the war. The end of the war ended in, on the Czechoslovakian border. And uh, I remember going into combat, praying, God, please take care of me. And then when we war, word came on the Czechoslovakian border that the Germans had surrendered, it was over. I went down to a field close by the Salzach River and got down on my knees and I prayed to God, thank you, God, for taking care of me. Wow. So I briefly covered several months right there. It's incredible. What is it, switching gears, what, what is it that you wish that we could learn from the past so that we don't repeat it? Well, I don't know how. The world, the world has evil people in it. 
and we, I don't know what we can learn about how to control uh, these evil people, uh, peace-loving people, and then you have those that are, just, are not peace-loving, that want to that want to cause problems and all that sort of thing. So I can't really answer your question other than just pray to God that, that we won't have to go through another situation like this. Uh, World War II was a total war. And uh, as I said, my brother was killed, my friends were killed. There was 13 boys in my graduating class. Six of us survived, seven didn't come home from World War II of the 13. And so war is a horrible thing. And so if we just, all I can answer to that is pray to God that we can not have people like that again in this world. Mr. Gentry, what do you want your legacy to be in life? Well, I don't know how to answer that question. I, I've, I'm trying to live a life that uh, maybe that I don't want to use this word, but I don't know a better word, that my life shines that there's some light coming from him. And I want to, I want to do that. I want to be that kind of life uh, because I've had a good life. I can't complain. I think a lot of things I wish didn't happen and hadn't happened, but, but all in all, I thank God for my life. And uh, I, I've had experiences in my life that have just meant the world to me. And I, I, I just hope that um, people, somebody somewhere that needs some help will say, you know, that old boy, he, he, he was all right. He was all right. Uh, I, I don't want to leave a legacy where somebody says, well, oh, oh you know, he sneaked around. He did that. He didn't. I don't want, I don't want that kind of, I don't want to do that. Uh, I want to be a shining light somewhere, somehow. I don't know whether that's answering your question or not. Oh, that's great. Uh, but anyway. You've been blessed with a lot of opportunities to influence uh, a lot of people in our community mm -hmm. from coaching 66 years to being in schools to inviting kids to come to the farm. Um, one of the things you do is you tell them five most important words. Oh, yeah. Tell us those words. They're, now, they're homemade now. This <laughs> Some of them have somebody better than theirs. Well, the five most important words to me was, I am proud of you. Think about that. And the reason I got those five words was a teacher I had once in school. I did something, I don't remember what it was, and Miss Josephine words, as a matter of fact. Miss Josephine said, I'm proud of you. Boy, I felt 100 feet tall just because she said she was proud of me. May I help you? Four words. Three words, you can't beat them. I love you. Two words, thank you. And the most important word is not I, it's we. We can do all things through him that gives us strength. Wow. I, just, I just made those up over months, but it satisfies me uh, over the years. Well, that's an incredible takeaway. Right. We're blessed by that. We all have a lot of people in our lives that we probably need to follow those up with and tell, tell our kids and tell the people that we work with, I'm proud of you. Um, that I'm thankful for you. Yeah. Um, and together we do make yeah. an incredible and difference. Don't forget, I love you. I love you. Yeah. I love you. Wow. Well, we have um, time for some questions. And so right. men have been submitting those this morning. Thomas? The first question here is We're coming up on a new year. What are your goals for 2016? 
All right, so we're coming up on a new year, Mr. Gentry. Do you have goals for 2016? Well, yes, I want to be here at the end of the year. <laughs> yes. Uh, no, I don't, I, I'm, not, I'm not kidding there either, but uh, 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 I, I, I have a wonderful family and I, I want them to stay healthy and strong. And I want all the people around me to be comfortable and uh, know that the good Lord is looking after them. Another question? Yeah, we've got a second one here. Uh, what would you tell a young man at the beginning of his career who wants to make a difference with his life? How do you do that? What would you tell a young man at the beginning of his career who wants to make a difference with his life? How to do that? Well, spend a lot of time on your knees, mm -hmm. praying. Uh, as I said, I. Uh, that going into combat back in those days when I was, I was scared. But I felt comfortable after I prayed to God to take care of me. I, I can remember when I was sitting in the truck, I remember who was around me, all that. And I just find that uh, you can't beat that. God's always close to you. He's right here with us now. And and he can, he'll listen to you anytime you want to talk to him. So that's my advice, to just stay close to God and, and, and you'll be all right. Okay. Be all right. Thomas, do we have another question? Yeah, this is a great one. Um, you mentioned the values you acquired during the Great Depression and World War II in your introduction. What values do you feel we need to encourage the most in raising our children and our grandchildren? So you mentioned the values that you learned growing up in the Great Depression and serving in the war. What are the values that we need to instill in our children? Well, first one that comes to my mind is hard work. Mm -hmm. uh, some people, uh, they, they use the expression, I'm not scared of work. I lay down right beside and take a nap, you know, things like that. They're making a little fun of it, but, they, but you, you, you've got to work. It's, anybody that tries to get through without works, they're not going to make it. They're not going to be happy. They're not going to be satisfied. So work as long as you can, as hard as you can. And uh, have a goal out there in front of you that you're going to. That, uh, and at my age now, my goal is pretty close, I think. I, I know where I'm going. I want to go. And uh, so I, I think that everybody needs to have a goal. They don't just say, just, I don't know what's going to happen to me today. Let's do this. Do this. I think they need to be look ahead and and say, I want to do this someday. I want to be this way someday. Have a goal mm -hmm. to, to work for. That's incredible. Thank you. We've got one last one that came in. Uh, Mr. Gentry, combat is a traumatic experience. How, do you personally, how did you personally see God's hand at work as you were in combat? Just combat was a traumatic experience. How did you see God work while you were in combat? Well, I, I, I know this. Uh, Michael Sismary, the guy from Chicago, he was a tough guy. But I, I couldn't rely on him. Mm. He had problems of his own. I got problems. I, I just feel like the more I think about God being close to me, and I pray every day, maybe 10, 10, 15 times a day, I talk to God, pray to him. 
Keep him close. And then when you get there, he won't be a stranger. Mm. He'll say, I've been knowing you a long time. And so I don't know whether I'm answering your question again or not, but uh, that's the best I can do, I think. Yeah. The worst words we could ever hear are, depart from me, I never knew you. Um, the best words we could hear are, welcome, good and faithful yes, servant. Absolutely, so, absolutely. I love that. That's a good way to put it. Mr. Gentry, on behalf of all the men who are here and all the men who are watching at home and um, all the men you've influenced through the years, I just want to say thank you. Um, you're a hero, and, uh, and you are leaving an incredible legacy just by telling your story um, and letting us learn from it. So thank you for being here today. Would you guys join me in thanking Mr. Gentry? We have one more week of our Men's Leadership Network breakfast for this semester, and Thomas will tell us about that in a moment. But um, before we transition out of that, I'd like to pray for us today. Absolutely. Father, we are incredibly blessed um, by the way you move through people's lives. Thank you for moving in Mr. Gentry's life, um, and thank you for allowing him um, to pass down to us um, the story of your power. We are not engaged in a world war right now, God, thankfully um, and graciously, um, but we face battles every day. Um, and whatever battle we're facing, we know that we can take his words to heart, um, hit our knees, um, and we'll make it through. Father, thank you for that. Um, thank you for Christ um, and the legacy of salvation that he gives us. Um, and thank you for the light that we're able to see um, through other followers of yours that point us back in your direction. Um, I ask your blessings on Mr. Gentry, his farm, his family. Um, and his life. In Jesus' name we pray today. Amen. Amen. Thank you, uh, Mr. Gentry. That was fantastic. We all uh, probably will make some trips out to the farm over the next couple of weeks. Enjoy this fall time. So um, if, if you guys are like me and you just could sit here for hours and hours and hours and, and hear uh, Mr. Gentry tell stories of, of his past and experiences, uh, then this is a fantastic resource for you. Uh, this is uh, An American Life, written by Jimmy Gentry. It chronicles his uh, growing up here in Franklin as well as his experiences in the war and, uh, and coming back after, afterwards. So this, this book is available to you at the back. Mr. Gentry has brought um, a, a handful of copies. They are signed, so you can pick those up in the back. Uh, I believe they're $20 a book, so they're, they're back there for you. If you want to learn more on spiritual leadership, this is uh, kind of the go-to. This is by uh, Henry and Richard Blackaby. Uh, it's kind of, I've, I've read through about half of this book, and, and, and the real theme here is moving people to God's agenda. So what would it look like and if instead of pursuing your own agenda or society's agenda, we really took some time and figured out, you know, what is Christ calling us to? What is his agenda? And then how do we as leaders begin to move people onto his agenda? So a fantastic resource for you. Again, Spiritual Leadership uh, by Henry and Richard Blackaby. So those are your resources. Uh, Nick mentioned next week. Next, next week is our last week for the fall. We're going to have Tim Corbin here. Tim Corbin is, of course, the head uh, men's baseball coach at Vanderbilt for the Commodores. He took the, uh, the doors to the College World Series the last two years, won the whole thing in 2014. So he's going to be speaking with us next week. You don't want to miss it. We're going to be talking about raising great kids. So we'll start with breakfast at 630, and we'll get going with the program at 7. Hope to see you next week.